We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. One of the distinctive qualities of the Christian life is joy. Not just occasional TGIF, weekend, or even holiday joy, but the possibility and the ability to have a constant joy. A constant joy in all situations as a precursor, really, to our future inheritance of eternal joy. It sounds good. It is biblical. It sounds right. But we often endure difficult situations in which it is good and right to be unhappy. It is good and right on occasion to mourn, to mourn the loss of a loved one, for example, to mourn over our sin. And yet, not once, but twice in the New Testament, we are called to rejoice always. How do we do this? More to the point, how do we do this when persecuted for Christ or going through any sort of difficult situation? Persecution being a theme we have looked at for many weeks in First Peter. First of all, I think it helps to be reminded that joy and happiness are two different things. Related, maybe, but very different, very distinct, at least the biblical definition. One, happiness, is fleeting. It's emotional. It is based on circumstances. That's why it ebbs and flows. It can just be your, your demeanor, your lack of sleep, whatever it may be, not, not even anything external. One moment you're happy, the next you're sad. But the other, joy, can be constant. It can be always because it is based on God. In fact, Philippians 4.4, which I mentioned earlier, doesn't just say rejoice always. It says rejoice in the Lord always. That's the secret. That's the key. And to put it in a way that I've shared with you before, happiness is based on your ever or always changing circumstances, whereas joy is based on your never changing God. You see, your job may change. Your paycheck may change. Your family life may change. People will pass away. You will get sick. Things will change. But God never changes. Your redemption never changes. His view of you because of the blood of Christ never changes. That is eternal. That is forever. And so based on that, you can have joy, yes, even while mourning, even while being unhappy. And although that helps us conceptually, when it comes to real life and authentic situations, some specifics, I believe, are helpful. Thankfully, we have come to a passage in First Peter in which Peter helps us to see how it is that we can not only rejoice in the midst of persecution, but rejoice in the midst of persecution in a way that is overflowing and even ecstatic. I believe these specifics will help us in rejoicing in other difficult situations as well. Would you turn with me to First Peter chapter 4? verses 12 through 19, as we close off chapter 4 of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Let me read that for you. Beloved, 
do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I told you I want to give you some specifics and what I want to piece out of this long passage are seven components. Seven components of persecution to remember to maintain your joy. And I want you to know that I'm not giving you seven components of joy. I'm giving you seven components of persecution that will help you maintain your joy because it is a right understanding of persecution that helps us understand exactly how we can rejoice. We will look at seven, and this will take us three weeks to cover. We're going to cover the first couple of them this morning. The first component of persecution for us as believers to remember in order to maintain our joy is the expectation of persecution. First, remember that you are to expect persecution. I find this in verse 12, which I'll read for you again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He changes his tone a little bit. Obviously, Peter's tone throughout is as a loving brother and leader in Christ. But he reminds them, beloved, I love you. This is difficult stuff I'm telling you. I understand it. It might come across as a rebuke, but I love you. We're in this together. You are my beloved, and we are all the beloved of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to the expectation of persecution. Generally speaking, whether it's persecution or something else, you understand in your life, work, family, whatever it is, expecting something helps you deal with it properly. When the boss comes and just surprises you with something, you I don't know what to do, and you kind of gather your things, your thoughts are scrambled. But if he's been telling you for three weeks, I'm going to be coming in three weeks, and I'm going to give you this project, you handle it better. You ever realize God's amazing grace, parents, that he gave you nine months to prepare for that first child? Nine months to prepare. I had a, a good friend who was uh, one of my Bible study leaders when I was in college, and they uh, were having trouble having children of their own, and so they adopted, and it was last minute, and they had about two days to prepare for two infants to come into their home. And they were just, I, I met at my seminary graduation, I remember 
meeting someone who went to church with them. He had flown in for the, one of my classmates' graduation. I said, hey, yeah, I, I know these two, and how are they doing with the new babies? And he just started laughing. He said, they are a wreck. They had no time to prepare. They didn't have the nine months. The babies just came, and they just freaked out. In fact, I still remember um, they were, uh, I had a spare room, and so they, they came uh, when they picked up the baby, and so they, they stayed with me for a couple days, and I remember waking up, and she had just gotten these babies, and she was literally locked in my bathroom, the mom crying on the phone, desperately calling someone from her church, like, what do I do? The baby won't sleep. It keeps crying because they, they had no preparation. But when you expect it, when you know it's coming, it helps you deal with it. It doesn't necessarily make it easier, right? Trials, persecution, they're still difficult, especially if persecution comes in a form that is physical. But the expectation in helping us deal with something is especially true for us as believers because we need to make the effort and take the time to focus on God. You understand? This isn't just like keep the baby healthy, get some sleep, get the work project done, be bitter the whole time, be angry the whole time. No, we need to pass through these difficulties with flying colors, which means not just getting to from point A to point B, but in that rejoicing and glorifying God and so much more important than for us to understand the expectation of persecution. Because even in everyday life, it's when we're surprised or caught off guard that our responses tend to be the most sinful, our mindset the most unholy. So, to start things off, Peter reminds us that we're not to be surprised when persecuted. And this is a concept we've seen a lot already in 1 Peter. And it goes back to the very essence of why we are persecuted, which is interwoven with the very essence of who we are, that is, followers of Christ. Would you turn with me to John chapter 15? We'll take it from the horse's mouth, Jesus Christ himself, John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. He writes this, if the world hates you, you know that it, was, it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word they will keep yours also. It's a dividing line. It's a, it's a line in the sand, right? We've, you understand this concept. There's no middle ground. You are either for God or against him. You either hate Christ and thus hate Christians, or you love them and will obey. There's no good person that is neither. No, you're either at war with God or you are with God. Later, in the epistles written by the same individual, John says in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And like John, as one of Jesus' disciples, Peter is very aware, both from their master's teachings as well as their personal experience, that this is the case. 
So Peter says in our passage this morning, don't be surprised, not at the ordeal, but the fiery ordeal among you. Now the word surprised he uses here in the Greek is the same verb he used back in 4.4. Remember when he was speaking of the world's shock, they're surprised that their newly saved friends are no longer living in the same sinful excesses of dissipation that, remember, in the time and the culture were interwoven, interconnected with the pagan religions that many people followed during that, that time. The word means bewilderment, astonished. Don't be surprised. Like, what is this? Why are they spitting on me? Why are they saying you're going to lose your job? Why are they not inviting me out to dinner with them after the big work conference? Don't be surprised by that. You understand why it's happening. And in fact, the, 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 for me, the, the repeated use of that word surprise is, is really the same thing. The fact back in 4.4 that the world is surprised and shocked in ancient Asia of these believers and how they behave now, that just shows the distinction between the world and Christians. And in that same passage, remember, they're going to be surprised and then they're going to revile, they're going to persecute you for it. And it's the same thing here. If, if they're so shocked at the difference, why are you so shocked at how they respond? You shouldn't be. One of the reasons that we shouldn't be surprised when persecuted is not just because God says it will happen, but because God says it will happen and God is in charge. He is sovereign. You understand that when he says you will be persecuted or there's a high likelihood of persecution, that the world may hate you because of Christ. That's the word of God. We don't just take the good as the promises of God. Oh, he's returning again. I'm forgiven of my sins. The Holy Spirit, blessing, all these things. Praise God. Grasp those. Live on those. That is the solid word of God. And then he says, but the world's going to hate you. That's a promise from God. That's a promise from your sovereign God. It will come to pass that the world will hate some, if not most, if not all Christians, as sure as heaven is real. You will be persecuted. God is in charge. And when we take these truths a step further, that God has said it, so it will be, and God has the power to make it happen, He is sovereign. We understand this next phrase in verse 12 really helps us to keep our joy in trials. And that is, he says, these trials come from a sovereign God that allow these persecutions in your life, he says, for your testing. And Peter describes the trials as fiery, fiery. In other words, he is referring to these difficulties as the most fierce and often most frightening of tests. However, that word fiery he uses in the Greek, it also happens to be a word that is not used to speak of destruction, but of the fire that refines. It's the word used of the fires that purify or refine precious metals. Because that is exactly what God is doing through these tests, through the persecution in your life. Persecution refines us as believers. It grows us. They strengthen us. 
Firstly, on the broadest level, as we've spoken about before, persecution for Christianity or against Christianity will distinguish between the true Christian and the unbeliever who's just playing church. The unbeliever who just likes to come coming in to church because it's a safe place, the world's too harsh, maybe like the music, maybe they're trying to sell something, maybe they're trying to pick up a girl or a guy, whatever it is, they like the safety and comfort in being in church. Maybe they say, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm a Christian, but they're not. It's persecution. When persecution comes, that's when they're going to really tell if they're a true Christian or not. But for those of us who are true Christians, this testing refines us. Like that gold nugget in the refiner, the metallurgist's lab, filled with impurities. You can look at it and you can even say, there's some dark spots. What's wrong with this? And you know that only fire is hot enough to melt that gold and make the impurities rise to the top for him to scoop them out. And that fire, it will melt and it will reshape that gold. Same gold, but remelted, reshaped in the professional's hands. The impurities removed. And then when it comes out of that fire and it cools down, it is purer and brighter than before the fire. And just as persecution will remove the sin and our lack of faith to make us holier. Again, when understanding the testing and the persecution, we must keep in mind the sovereignty of God. Specifically, that He is in charge of these difficulties. It's not that you just encounter someone outside of the all-watchful, all-knowing eyes and mind of God, and they start berating you because they find out you're a Christian, and an angel flies up to the throne. Alert, alert, Jocelyn's being persecuted. Oh, I better do something. Oh, I'll use this to refine. No, he's there all along. He knew that that individual would persecute you before that individual was even a thought in his parents' mind. God is sovereign. You see, the refining fire in the metallurgist workshop is always controlled both in time and temperature. He is no fool. He doesn't want to ruin the gold, lose the gold. See, his goal is to purify rather than to destroy. And so he keeps a watchful eye on the thermometer. He keeps a watchful eye on the clock so as to have the perfect balance to perfect, not obliterate. And to do so, he must constantly watch. He must constantly be aware he must constantly scrutinize. In other words, he must be in control of the fire rather than the fire having control of his oven. My friends, in your trial, specifically in your persecution, it is fire, but God is in control of the fire. And though it may feel like the trial is in control, though it may feel like the persecutor is the one who is in power, the reality is that God has never and will never take his hands off of your circumstances, his eye off the clock, or his focus 
off of the thermometer because your holy and loving God's desire is to perfect, not obliterate. And unlike that man in front of the furnace purifying his metals, God does not make mistakes. I don't care what that unbeliever, what that atheist does to you. I don't care what you read in the news of Christians being beheaded, Christians being imprisoned. My sovereign God, your sovereign God, is loving, he is gracious, and he does not make mistakes. So, do not be surprised, as Peter writes, as though some strange thing were happening to you as if this just occurred by chance, as if freedom of religion is a biblical thing. It's not. It is an American thing. Nowhere are you promised politically freedom of religion in the Bible. No. God is sovereignly allowing this in your life. So why are we persecuted for our faith? Not just because the world is evil, but because God loves you. Not just because you are a Christian, but because God is shaping you into a holier Christian. Or, as Peter says, quite simply, this is for your testing. This is for your refining. Not pass or fail test, you understand. But the trying that molds us into the kind of Christian we desire to be. The kind of Christian you could say God expects us to be. And the idea of this kind of testing is found all over the Scriptures as proof of the genuineness of someone's faith. When that faith is proven, then the testing in that Christian continues for strengthening. Even in Job's life, we understand this to be true. Though we get the curtains pulled back, in a sense, and we see what is going on at the throne of God in his conversation with the devil, we still see the refining in this. Job 23.10, But he, God, knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Romans 5, verse 3-5, through 5, We exult, same word here, we rejoice, We exult in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been trickled, no, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And turn to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Some of you know this by heart. It's a a great... uh, Memory verse, if you will, if you're uh, into memorizing Scripture, which you should be, this is a great one. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Same idea, trials and joy. We're talking about persecution, but same idea. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren. Can you imagine reading this? It's like, oh, here it comes. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when the Lord blesses you. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when the church is established. 
Consider all joy, my brethren, when we come to visit and encourage you. Nope. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Same idea. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We could talk about gold. Uh, We could talk about school, right? That's a trial. That's, That's difficulty that makes us who we are, right? Many of you can look back at your at your schooling and the, those difficult nights, those all-nighters, all that coffee, all that Red Bull, and in the midst of it, you're just sick, you're wondering why. And now you look at your job, you look at your family, you look at your ability to pay the rent, and you say, yeah, that was worth it. The fires of university, the fires of high school, the fires of studying for the GED, whatever it may have been for you. Athletes, you get this. Just go. Go to training camp anywhere, to your local college or university where they're running and running and running and doing all kinds of drills. Nobody is smiling because it's hard. It's painful. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. But they know it is testing through fires to make them the best athletes, the best students the best employees, managers, the purest gold, the holiest hopeful Christians they can be. And sometimes we think like, okay, you're telling me God is sovereign doesn't help. That that just seems mean. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It hurts emotionally. I can't sleep. It's fed my anxiety. It's challenged me in ways that, that don't make me feel comfortable. Who's your favorite team? What school do you root for? You want the best coach possible. And never has a coach won an award. Never has a coach won the trophy. Never has a coach led his team to a championship because he just sits there and is like, all right, thanks for showing up at 5.30 a.m. Surprise, breakfast buffet. No. Come on. You know your team. Go to your assistant coaches. Run. Catch. Throw. Hit. Put up some weight because he loves his team. And it's not just the team. It's not just a ta- championship. Some of your athletes, you get this. The good coaches, the best coaches love those individuals. They see the potential and they say, you know what? You have a chance to be a professional. You have a chance for the NFL, the NHL, whatever it may be. And I'm going to focus on you. But you guys... This is it. When you graduate from university, there's no more sports for you, but you know what? I'm still going to do my best to make you the best. I'm going to still get the tutors and make you excel in your grades as well. That's the good coach. That's the coach where when, when a guy retires as a multimillionaire from the NFL, he goes back and he says, my high school coach was the guy. This is our loving father. I get it. In the midst of it, even the thought of it, it is difficult. Perhaps more so for us as Americans, it's not so much the persecution we're going through, but the persecution that we read about on our news blips on Facebook or looking at the news. Well, the news kind of ignores it, but you know what I'm saying. When you hear it, you say, that, that just doesn't seem right. But understand that your loving God that has pushed, put you 
in a cushy apartment, in a warm bed, with a roof over your head, with a six-figure salary in Silicon Valley, is the same loving, gracious, merciful God who allowed those Christians in a Muslim country to be beheaded. We got to understand this. We have to understand that this does not violate or change the character of God. We have to expect persecution, but we can only do it with a joyful heart when we look at the big picture, when we look at God's plan, when we look at God's sovereignty and God's loving character. And it is because of all of this, the hatred of the world and the loving and sovereign desire of God to refine us, that we can be, go beyond just accepting go beyond just understanding, go beyond just let me look at the Greek, to embracing 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, will be, will be persecuted. There's a connection there, though, I need to point out. If you say, I'm, never, I'm not persecuted at all, this is not for me. I read for you again, He does not say all Christians, but all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who are those who desire to live godly? Those who are proud of their God. Those who share the gospel. Those who live out their faith. Those who don't play office politics. Those who don't break the law. Those who report their managers for cheating on, on the company's taxes you will be persecuted if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. So expect it. Let me give you a second component of persecution to remember, to maintain your joy. Expect persecution. Number two, the exaltation of persecution. The exaltation, not the exaltation. 1 Peter 4.13 But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. And this is really where we get the theme of the whole passage in our whole series. The first thing that Peter tells us is that the suffering we endure as a result of persecution is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, don't misinterpret this. It's not that you are crucified for your sins nor is it saying that what you endure in trials or persecution covers your sin. It doesn't. As followers of Christ, he is saying we endure the same type of persecution, namely, in the broadest sense, to suffer for what is right. Like Christ did not suffer for his political agenda because he had none. Uh, Christ did not suffer because of how he dressed, for his ethnicity, for any of those things. He suffered for being righteous. He suffered for doing and teaching and proclaiming what is right. And that's what it means when we share in the sufferings of Christ. To suffer as Christians for doing what God wants us to do as it's fleshed out in holy living, a bright testimony in submission to him. And that word share, share in the sufferings of Christ, the NIV says participate in. It means to have something in common and thus to be a companion of someone. We are a companion of Christ through these sufferings. 
We are sharing the common sufferings of Christ. Again, we don't suffer to the same degree, but the same kind, the persecution of righteousness. And to the degree that this happens to you, Peter writes, you are to keep on rejoicing. See, when when it comes to the practical reality of being in the midst of persecution, it really takes almost all we have as Christians to focus on being patient, give all our energy to endurance, right? It takes all our strength not to fight back, to, to keep our minds from fantasizing about vengeance, let alone maybe throwing a punch or a harsh word back to actually enact vengeance. And now Peter is saying on top of all of this, rejoice in the Lord. And how this is possible is to recognize what Peter is saying here. That you, who were once at war with God, now share, participate in the sufferings of the Creator of the universe for His sake. In other words, neither Peter nor I are calling you to be psychotic. We don't rejoice in the pain. We don't rejoice in the physical pain or the emotional pain. We don't rejoice in, the, uh, in our families being torn apart, which Jesus said, I come to, to, to pit mother against daughter and father against son. He's saying, my, my ways, Christianity is going to tear families apart, let alone communities, societies, whatever. Right? He starts with the most intimate unit, which he created for the, as a foundation of society. We've talked about that before. He says, I have come to do this because I'm putting a line in the sand. We don't rejoice in that. We don't rejoice in the fact that, that you have a relative that no longer speaks to you because you're a Christian or that you lost your job or, or whatever it may be. We rejoice in the fellowship with Christ. That is what we rejoice in. It's not the suffering in and of itself that we rejoice in, but the significance and meaning of that suffering, what that suffering represents, which is a sense of unity and identification with our Savior. And this is a good reminder of the fact that we're talking about suffering for Christ, suffering for righteousness' sake. Again, persecution for your race is horrible and wrong, but it's not the persecution we're talking about in Scripture. We're not talking about being bullied for your personality, not talking about being uh, targeted because of your wealth, but suffering for the sake of, on behalf of, Jesus Christ. And when you think about the reality of our sin and how God views our sin, how our sin violates God's will for us, and you think about the reality of the holiness of God in contrast then it really is safe to say that sharing anything with Christ, even if it is suffering, is a sweet, undeserved, blessed, and joyful thing. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus. Even if what you are sharing with Christ involves physical and emotional pain. 
one of the unique experiences I've had that is really just ingrained in my heart and thinking since being married and now to a, a greater degree after having kids is the desire to share experiences with my wife. And, and I don't mean share the good experiences. I mean share everything with my wife. It is really hard for me to do anything without my wife. Like You ever, you ever heard of people like live-tweeting a meeting or a conference? I think they used to do that in the the Apple Developers Conference, when they would tell us about the new new iPhone or whatever. It was invite-only, and they wouldn't broadcast that on video. And so all these reporters would be live-tweeting. Okay, Steve Jobs is coming out. Steve Jobs is wearing black again. Steve Jobs, okay, it's time for the iPhone, I think, you know. And everyone wants, and you'd just, be, you'd just be reading these threads. And some of you have seen me do this, and I, I apologize because I know it's rude. When we have a guy's night out dinner, I'm like live-tweeting the dinner because I want my wife to be part of it. I want to share everything with her. I don't want her to be part of my life. I want her to be every part of my life. I, 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 can't, I can't even walk down the streets of Union Square without seeing some silly, silly overpriced artwork based on a Dr. Seuss uh, book in an in a, in art gallery. I got to stop and take a picture because I want to show my kids because they're not there walking with me to stop and say, look at that silly thing. As much as I have fun going out with the guys or going out with just the kids alone or one of my kids alone, it's simply not as enjoyable without her, without all of us together. Because she's part of my life. She makes everything funnier. She makes all sadness more comforting. She is my half. She is me. The two have become one. And when you understand that principle in whatever relationship you may or even conceptually in your life have, you understand this concept of Christ and suffering. Because any enjoyment without Him is not as enjoyable, and some would say it's even bitter. And with Him, all sufferings are sweet. Louisa Stead cried out in a hymn that we've been singing for hundreds of years, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus because she had enough food to fill her belly, probably just long enough for her to finish that hymn before she went back into abject poverty." wondering if her four-year-old daughter was going to starve to death that day. How could she write that? How could she say that? Because she understood that though it wasn't persecution, that even trials, when sharing in the wonders of the Lordship of Christ are so, so sweet. I do want to point out that Peter is not urging us to seek suffering for Christ. There's nothing noble in that. 
There's much that we are called to pursue in Christ that brings us joy. Persecution is not one of them. Now, we've already said when you live the way you're supposed to live as a Christian, persecution is almost inevitable. However, we don't purposely egg people on so that they will hurt us for our faith. We're never told to seek out persecution. Trust me, if God sees you're ready to go the next level in your commitment to him, he will bring the testing, however, whatever form it may take, to make you the person he wants you to be. One of my mentors, one of my seminary professors and good friends who passed away recently, Dr. Trevor Cragen, one of my biggest fans, one of my biggest supporters, he told me, when I told him that I just had decided to enroll in seminary, after telling me how happy he was and in his wisdom, telling me that he had wanted to, me to go to seminary but never pushed me to because he knew that wasn't his place. He trusted the Spirit to do his work. After that, the first thing he told me is, I need to tell you, now that you have committed to be a pastor, you need to be prepared for the Lord to bring some of the hardest trials ever in your life. Why? Because the Lord wants to refine me to be a godly man for his sake and for your sake. We can talk all the biology. We can talk genetics. But I know why my middle son has the illnesses he has. I know why my wife has been on bed rest twice and is probably going to be there a third time doesn't mean I handle it flippantly that we don't see doctors because I believe what the scriptures say, which was repeated in a different way by literally the wisest man I have ever personally met, Dr. Trevor Cragen. He is refining me. He's refining my wife and my family. It's very clear. And so I see this. And though we are unhappy, though we have challenges, though on a, on a practical level, because of medical bills, we are much poorer for it, we rejoice because we see God's hand in all of it. In all of it. He is shaping us all in a different way. And again, we don't seek out persecution, but at the same time, we don't purposely avoid it by not serving, by not being a light, by not sharing the gospel. And if it comes, we do rejoice because of the perfecting it brings as well as the fellowship with Christ. This concept of joy and pain is simply unacceptable to the world because it goes against the grain of the natural mind. It simply doesn't register. They can't rejoice in something like this because there is no greater goal, there's no greater good, there's no greater reward, but there is for us. The end of verse 13. Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Just as we share in Christ's sufferings, we will one day share in his glory. We can rejoice now because we anticipate even greater joy in the future. You could say our joy and suffering today 
is grounded on the joy in glory tomorrow. That glory that will be ours, that we will share in, is already Christ's. He's in glory now, but that glory, Peter says, is hidden. And at his second coming, when he returns, that glory will be revealed to us and to the world. And when he comes, we will see and we will fully understand that the end is here. Our Lord has returned and all the promises for our hard work, our suffering, our trials will be fulfilled. The result is not rejoicing as with our sufferings, but rejoicing with exaltation. Literally, to be exuberantly happy, to rejoice with rapturous joy. You say, I have no idea what that means. Neither do I, but if you are a Christian here this morning, someday you will. And here we go full circle. This will only happen when the persecution that we face and endure proves that we are true Christians. The persecution is evidence of our belonging to Him. And this, in turn, leads to the joyful expectation of His return. Quickly, I want you to turn to a few passages with me. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. And you'll see these same, uh, these same uh, themes, right? Suffering, the, the, the affirmation that we are children of God, as well as future glory. Romans eight sixteen through 18. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's the key right there, right? Oh, yeah, this hard work, that's nothing compared to the Christmas bonus I know I'm going to get for doing this project and joining this team. It doesn't even compare. You don't even know how much they're giving money they're giving me, right? It doesn't even compare. The sufferings compared to the glory will one have, one day have, doesn't even compare. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. Verses 32 through 39 of Hebrews chapter 10. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. You see this? A public spectacle. I mean, most of our persecution is in private. Most of our, I really believe that most of American Christians, their persecution is just perceived in their own minds. It's not even true persecution. These Christians were being made a public spectacle. They were burned, they were killed, they were ridiculed. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Right? So even if you weren't, you're part of the church. People knew, hey, you know that guy. You're a fool too, they would say. Verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance 
so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. There's a warning. Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. You ever get in in the middle of your work week, right? Piles of paperwork, project deadlines, but you get that tinge of excitement knowing that the paycheck is coming on Friday. You got bills to pay, it's a date night to pay for, whatever it may be. And you get a little excited. It's like, and you're excited, and yet there's the paperwork. There's the emails from the boss, project deadlines, all this stuff. And yet you're excited because even though it's not here yet, you know it's coming. And though you are in the midst of difficulties, that money is going to be in your hands pretty soon. It's the future reward. It's the coming payoff that makes it all worth it. And to a much greater degree, and I understand when I say that, there's a double meaning, the reward to a much greater degree, the suffering to a much greater degree, it's the same idea here. We look to the end goal. We rejoice with exaltation because the sufferings don't even compare. And who is he speaking to? He is speaking to people who are being killed for their faith. He is speaking to widows whose husbands were martyred. He is speaking to the modern-day pastors in China who are imprisoned, had all their possessions stolen, and as we speak, are being doused in water and then a cattle prod. He is speaking to the Muslim women who were legally beheaded because they accepted Christ and their husband took a sword to their necks. Even that is nothing. It's not even, not even nothing in comparison. It's not even worthy to be compared to the future glory. And it reminds me of Paul and those famous words of 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8. Just one last time, would you turn there with me? I want you to see this in your own Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. You know these words well. This is Paul. You know what he's been through. You know how he suffered for Christ physically, emotionally, escaping cities in the middle of the night, being begged by elders of churches, please leave, we can't lose you yet. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He gets it. He's done. The reward is coming. Now look at the intro to this passage, verse 6. Even as I write, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. They're preparing to kill me. And the time of my departure has come. I just thought of this 
Thank you for your patience with me this morning. There was a night this week that our oldest son came into our bed pretty late because he couldn't sleep. Um, He had been teased at school for some silly reason. And we got into talking. I'm not even sure how we got this, but I started talking to him about the future. Right, because we try to tell him, be you know, when 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 I don't I don't want to say he was bullied. I don't think he was bullied. I think we use we abuse that term these days. But he was made fun of, and and we try to teach our kids: you need to be patient with them. You need to love them. They probably don't love God. They probably don't come from families that love God. That's okay. But they just believe differently than we do. We try to teach our kids that one day when you do face a bully, you have compassion on them because there's a very good chance that when they go home from school, they're being bullied by their parents, and that's why they're the way they are. And their parents were bullied by their grandparents, and so on and so forth. And so you love and you have compassion. And so we got to talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and I was explaining what, what little we know about what it's going to be like, but I told him that there would be no more sin. There would be no more bullying. There would no, be no more hurt feelings. There would be no more tears. And he was smiling, and he was smiling And the first thing he said, and he said, and Ethan won't be allergic to anything. That was his first thought. This makes it all worth it. I'm getting emotional here. It was a conversation that my wife and I will never forget. And we will think about what my son said. And we will think about his love for his brother. And we will rejoice in that. And we will love that. And when he's misbehaving, we'll think of that. And we'll give him a hug. And that would have never happened if Ethan did not have medical issues. I think one of the most beautiful Calming, you see this in, in I kind of cheapen it by saying this, in, in memes these days, it, the, the picture of nature is a running brook, a babbling brook. And you don't see this in our area, but you've ever been hiking or go to another part of the country or the world, and you go and, and it's just quiet, it's just trees and birds, and pretty soon all you hear is this babbling brook, this rushing water. And you know, you don't think about it, but you know that this water came from somewhere and these smooth rocks have been shaped over time and even this brook has been shaped over time and there's so much behind it. And you stop and you listen and you relax. Maybe you pray and you meditate. And pretty soon, you don't realize when this happens, but you, you think this brook is almost singing. But when you remove the rocks from that brook, you take away its song. Let's pray. Father, we don't fully understand the particulars of why you do what you do, but we thank you. And even as we look at the persecution that we face and around the world, we thank you that it is only by your grace 
that you didn't just kind of save us and make us kind of different, but because of the grossness and wickedness of sin and how it has just tainted and polluted everything in this world, our salvation makes us so different that we are hated, that we are persecuted. And in that we rejoice. We rejoice in our salvation. And Father, though it is hard, we thank you. We thank you that you have put these rocks in the brooks of our lives so that our lives aren't always smooth, that there are difficulties, there are changes in our path, there are waves and ripples and foam. But Lord, because of those rocks, you have made our songs sweeter, louder, and you have made us brighter and purer and holier. May we be people who live in a way that you desire so that the world looks at us, knows we're different, and in their sin wants to persecute us. And if they choose to act on that, may we respond with joy, not with vengeance, not with anger, but with joy, glorifying you with an understanding of who you are, with the right perspective, with the worship of your character. I pray these things in Jesus' name.